Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Faith without action is dead. Or to put it in other terms, faith must be visible. Faith is something that is seen. Faith is something that will be exposed in the way that we live. And every one of us lives with faith. We all have faith. We all have a faith component to our life. In in very simplistic terms, we live day to day by trusting in systems, processes and people. The mere fact that you walked in the building today tells me that you have some kind of faith. When you walk through those doors, you walk the front doors, when you walked up the staircase into this building, says that you have faith in the builders, the engineers, and the architects who built this building 90 years ago. You know, you walk in here going, I know the stairs are going to hold me. I know the building isn't going to collapse. You, you look up and, and you go, I know that this ceiling isn't going to fall on my head. Now, there are a whole bunch of people who make excuses about why they don't come to church. You know, old school people will say, I, don't want, I won't go to church because the, the ceiling will fall on my head. And I don't think that's going to happen. But if there was a ceiling to fall on my head, this would be a nice one. You know, I, I, I'd take this one. This is a nice ceiling. But I don't think, I just, just to assure you, that if people didn't laugh this morning. They actually thought, oh, my goodness, are we in? <laughs> 90 years, that's a long time. It's okay, people. We're going to be okay. You know, you exhibited faith when you sat down on these chairs. You know, you, you sized it up. And you thought, I reckon that chair is going to hold my weight. And you sat down. All of you did because you're all sitting there and you're not on the floor. Julia, we came and we sat on these IKEA flat pack chairs tonight. And you placed faith not only in IKEA, but you, you, you placed faith in Andrew Serkham, who actually put these together. Well done. That was, that was a big step of faith. Now, I joke, we do, we do make those steps of faith, but, but, I, but I also believe that every one of us takes steps of faith in how we see life, meaning, purpose, and ultimately where we see happiness. Every one of us. Now, I know for many of us here, we're in a church, so the likelihood is that many of you, most of you will probably say, I have a faith in Jesus. I follow the Christian God. That's my faith. And so I live my life around that. Some of you may be here and you're still on a journey. You've got questions. You're not quite sure. Maybe you're of another faith. Maybe you're Buddhist or Muslim or or, or somewhere in between. Maybe you would say you're agnostic or maybe you would even say you are atheist. I would posture and say that doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum, that is still a step of faith. You are stepping out and believing something that you cannot see. And more than that, I, I know what faith you have because it is made visible. What you believe is ultimately expressed, and it is expressed in the decisions you make, the people you spend time with, the morals that you hold to, where you spend your money, where you spend your time, where you believe you find happiness is what you put your faith in. Our faith is made visible by what we do. I also know that most people hate hypocrisy. 
Most people hate hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. And I reckon that one of the greatest enemies of the church and its witness are Christians who proclaim one thing with their lips and do another thing with their lives. Do you find that? I think most people hate hypocrites. And if I'm honest, those who are outside the church, many of them, many of them in Australia, will look at the church and go, they are just full of hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. I tell you who who didn't have time for hypocrites. It was Jesus. Jesus hated hypocrisy. His strongest words were against hypocrites. And when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he pointed his guns directly at, not physically, but, but his words towards Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those who said one thing and did another. You can go and read Matthew 23 to actually see how strong he was. But let, let me just give you an overview. He confronted the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and he called them these things. This is, this is how he saw them. He unloads on them. He calls them children of hell. He calls them blind guides. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them snakes. He calls them broods of vipers. None of those things are, are particularly nice. In verse 23 of Matthew 23, he, write, he says this, Woe to you. It's like this prophetic curse. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the, most important, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus has strong words for people who do not put their faith into action. And James follows in the same stream as his half-brother. Picking up the words of Jesus, James also has no time for hypocrisy. James has no time for people who say one thing with their lips but refuse to practice it in their lives. And so we're going to unpack some of this in James chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to James chapter 2. We're going to be starting from verse 12. The words are going to be on the screen behind me too, if you want to read along there. James chapter 2, starting at verse 12 and going through to verse 26. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will, will, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James clearly says here that faith is only faith when you put it into practice. If you are not willing to put faith into practice, it's not faith. Faith without action, James says, is no faith at all. Faith without action is no faith at all. My dad's a pastor and, uh, and he used to travel around and preach quite a bit and uh, particularly when I was a kid, and there was one story in particular that I heard more than any other story. In fact, it's a story that he didn't just preach. It was a story that I heard from many people. And in fact, I know that we've got a younger crowd here tonight. There was a whole bunch of people this morning who knew the story. I reckon there's a bunch of you who have heard this story as well. So enjoy the ride if you have. Just go with me. And if you haven't, this is a whole new experience for you. The story is of a guy called Charles Blondin. And he was a, an acrobat and a tightrope walker. Anybody with me? Anyone heard this story? There'll be a few. Everyone over the age of, I'm not going to say. <laughs> well, he was well known in the 19th century. And, and, and what he did was, over the course of a year, he, he, he built a tightrope from America to Canada over the Niagara Falls. And, uh, and he, would, he would walk over this tightrope and, and, and below him, 50 metres below, were the sharp rocks and the millions of, of litres of water that were pouring over the edge of Niagara Falls. And crowds would gather. In fact, the word got out, more and more people gathered both on the American, the US side, and, and then the Canadian side as well to watch. And, and he did a whole bunch of things. Not only did he walk across the tightrope, but he cycled across the tightrope. Uh, he went across the tightrope in a sack. He went across the tightrope on stilts. In fact, he even cooked breakfast while walking across the tightrope once. So they said, and the more that he did these things, the crowds got bigger and bigger to watch him do his incredible stunts. And then on July 15, 1859, Charles Blondin decided to walk to Canada across the tightrope backwards. And when he got to Canada, to the cheers and the applause of the Canadians, he grabbed a wheelbarrow, he blindfolded himself, and then he went back over to the other side to America. And obviously, you can imagine the crowd was aghast. And when he got to the other side, they cheered and they roared. It was a massive crowd. They just loved watching him do all these things. He was incredible, the way in which he could walk across this tightrope. And they cheered and, they, and, they, and they, they adored him. And as he arrived back to the U.S. side, he actually paused. He stopped and he yelled out to the massive crowd that was there, he said, do you believe 
I can carry a person inside this wheelbarrow. And of course, the adoring crowd said, yes, yes, we believe. Put somebody in the wheelbarrow and take them across. And, he, and then whenever the cheering said, died down, he said, okay, who's getting in? Everything went very quiet. Now, this is where the story gets a little hazy and there's different endings to the story. Some just say that nobody got in. Some, some say that there was a little old woman who, who, who yelled up from the crowd who said, yes, I'll do it. And he took this woman across in the wheelbarrow and back again and that turned out to be his mother. Now, we don't know whether that's true or not, but I'm just going with it because I just think it's a nice story. Good on your mum. Here's, here's, here's the point. Here's the point. People were not willing to put their faith into action. See, that's, that's the challenge for us. We can believe and we can give lip service, but are we willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Are we willing to have the courage to put our faith into action? Faith is only faith when you put it into practice. If you're not willing to put your faith into practice, it isn't faith. And James paints a picture here of what faith looks like. And really helpfully, he gives us an analogy and then two character stories to show us what faith looks like. Firstly, faith looks like, according to James, clothing and feeding those in need. Faith looks like clothing and feeding those in need. In verse 15 and 16, we read it before. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? I mean, we can read this and go, who would do that? That's ridiculous. Who would, who would see their friend or walk past somebody and see them in need and go, oh, bless you. You just keep warm and make sure that you, you get that, that, that hungry tummy filled and bless you. Off. It just, that's just crazy. That is cruel. That's just lip service. That's not love. That's not faith. But I reckon we're all in danger of doing it. I know if I'm really honest, I'm doing it. See, in our culture, we have, have a thing which, which I see it growing, particularly in our social media age. It's called virtue signaling. Now, so often we're willing to jump online and align ourselves to whatever the, the, that thing is that's hot at the moment and kind of put our two cents. We spend five seconds tapping out something on Facebook or Instagram or we just share something and it somehow absolves us of any responsibility of doing anything about it. We've just told the whole world, yeah, I'm, I'm for that, I'm behind that, without it ever costing us anything. And if I'm honest... It's really easy to do. I'm sure I've done it, and we shouldn't. It's exactly what James is addressing here. Let's not be a community that just virtue signals. Let's actually engage with the issues and do something practical about it. It's exactly what Jesus did. See, we have a model to follow. 
Jesus, God who stepped down from heaven and came to earth, the God who didn't just provide lip service, but actually said, I'm going to take on the problem for myself. I'm going to step down from heavenly glory and come down into the brokenness of humanity. And more than that, I'm going to suffer and die for that humanity. You, you, you look at Jesus in a, and profoundly Jesus walked the earth and he critiqued the hypocrites. He challenged the hypocrites, but he hung out with the broken, the marginalized, the poor, those in need. The God of the universe spent time with those who were broken. Jesus didn't virtue signal. We do not serve a virtue signaling God. And Jesus invites us to follow him. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan not as a kind of a nice jingoistic kind of story, but to say, hey, I'm pointing to a Samaritan, that person you hate, that's the person you should be like. The one who loves the broken, the one who loves the neighbour. Jesus shows us and he teaches us and he calls us to live a life of faith that looks like caring for, clothing and feeding those in need. That's what faith looks like. Secondly, as we read James here, we see that that faith requires obedient courage. Faith requires obedient courage. And James gives a story of Abraham, the father of their faith. He says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, I covered this story a few months ago. It's a confronting story. The story of of God coming to Abraham and saying, I want you to go and sacrifice your only son, your your eldest son, Isaac. The one who I I promised would would help continue the line so that your nation would propagate, so that the nation of Israel would be, that the promise would be fulfilled. Yeah, that son, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice. Now, it challenges a whole bunch of our justice senses right now. I don't want us to get caught into that. What I want to look at is and point out is the fact that Abraham trusted God. He trusted the promise of God that God would be faithful. And he took... Isaac up that hill, but he didn't get a chance to sacrifice him because God stopped it. He said no. But in midst of all of that, I'm sure Abraham was confused. He didn't know what, it was, what the outcome was going to be, but he knew that God was good and he was going to trust God. There was a courageous obedience. See, faith in action is not easy. Faith in action will challenge our senses. Faith in action will mean us stepping outside of our comfort zone and stepping out of our level and sense of control and trusting God and believing that he is good. Faith requires courageous obedience. And thirdly, faith is for everyone. I love this third story. I love how he chooses a prostitute. Rahab, to show that faith is on offer to everyone. We read in verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. I mean, even in this passage in James in the New Testament, even though it's thousands of years later, Rahab is still known as a prostitute. 
Rahab the prostitute, but she's the redeemed prostitute. Rahab is the mother of David, who is the father of Jesus, you know, with a whole bunch of generations. If you know the story of Rahab, she was living in Jericho and, and the people of Israel are coming and they're, they're looking to attack. And if you know the story, they march around the walls and the walls fall down, but there's one part of the wall that doesn't fall down. It's Rahab. Why? Because she knew, she identified and knew that this nation of Israel trusted the true and living God. And so when two spies came in to check out the land, she identified, she said, I know that you serve and love the true God. I will protect you. She stepped out in bold, courageous faith, even though she was the outsider. She would have been outcast in, in Jericho. She would have been the one as she walked down the streets that, that men and women would have looked down on. She's the one they would have laughed at, whispered behind her back, scowled at. She was the outcast. Yet God saw fit to make her an important part of the story. So important that James would say she is a mother of faith. You want to know what faith is? It's for people like Rahab. See, faith is for everyone. It's not just for men. It's not just for holy people. It's not just for insiders. It's not just for the wealthy and the influential. Everyone is invited into a faith with Jesus. And the way to faith is through grace. Through grace. None of us deserve to be invited into a relationship with God. It should be game over for all of us. Yet God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, so that if we place our faith in him, we will be forgiven. We will be restored. See, grace enables us to step towards faith. Grace is what draws us towards faith. See, faith is ultimately an acceptance of grace. Faith is an acceptance that God has come for us. God is offering forgiveness for us. Righteousness cannot be earned. It must be received. We take hold of this gracious gift through faith, not through works. This is important. We're going to jump into an important theological point here, but I think it speaks to us. See, the enemy of faith is self-righteousness. The enemy of faith is actually trying to earn grace. We live in a time of self-righteousness. You know, we're told time and time again, we must have faith in ourselves. We're told, just believe in yourself. Just believe in your resources. The mantra of the ages, you can do anything, just believe in yourself. Alongside that, we've covered this recently, but personal feelings, how we feel equals righteousness. The message that we receive in our time today is that our personal feelings, our, our, our feelings, our emotion, emotions are our truth and our truth is ultimately right. And so we're finding ourselves fighting for self-righteousness. We're saying to ourselves, how I feel is my truth and my truth is right. 
And what that does is it gives rise to comp- uh, competition and competing forces. See, when, it, when self-righteousness is present in our lives, we seek to do better than the other. We, we seek to compare ourselves against the other. We seek to judge ourselves against the other. I don't know if you ever find this, but you know when self-righteousness is in our heart because we take joy in the failure of others. Why? Well, it makes us feel more righteous. It makes us feel more justified. You know, it's this kind of thinking, this kind of self-righteousness that that motivates the sale of gossip magazines. It fuels reality TV and the voyeuristic viewing of, of public failings. It drives cancel culture. And if you ever find yourself just watching on as there's a massive pile on for somebody who's just made a mistake. Why? Because it makes us feel a little better. And if we're honest, perhaps we feel like that at times. Well, I'd never be like that. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the enemy of faith. Why? Because we're trying to be our own God. And the thing is, is that when we try and be our own God, when we try and justify ourselves, it ultimately gives rise to fear. Why? Because we will ultimately feel out of control. We go right back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We see as they take the fruit, they say, we want to be our own God. And what's the first emotion that they feel? They feel fear. They're naked and afraid. Why? Because they realize that they're no longer in control. And this is what happens. This is what happens when we live in this self-righteousness that gives rise to pride. We feel like we need to protect ourselves. We need to hold on to ourselves we need to make sure that we're doing okay. We, we, we keep our eyes on ourselves rather than looking out. We seek to protect our position and we worry more about what we have rather than what we can give. When we live a self-righteous life, we worry more about what we need to protect rather than what we give and we turn in on ourselves. It was a German theologian, Martin Luther, who who described sin as someone turned in on themselves. And, And Martin Luther grappled with this passage that we're looking today. This was a challenging passage for Martin Luther. You've got to understand a little bit, and I know some of you will know about Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in the 14th and 15th century in, in Germany. He was, a, he was a short man and he was a monk, a Catholic priest. And he struggled internally with his faith because he never felt he was good enough. As, as hard as he tried, as he tried to be a good monk, as he tried to do all the right things according to the Catholic tradition, he always felt like he was never quite, quite there. He never felt like he was quite good enough to measure up to the expectations of a God who had all these rules upon him. And it beat him down. And he had moment after moment of... of uh, of great pain, 
of great issue as he tried to figure out who is this God and am I good enough? Until he came to a place of reading the book of Romans and realizing that his faith and his salvation was not based on being good and and obeying all the laws and getting the pattern right and being moral, but rather it was based on faith. And so he writes this in his autobiographical fragment, part of it which we've, we've got from 1545. He writes these words, At last, as I meditated day and night, God showed mercy and I turned my attention to the connection of the words, namely, quoting from Romans, The righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the righteousness in which a just man lives by the gift of God, the grace of God. In other words, by faith. And that, what Paul means is this. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is passive. It's given to me. In other words, that which... That by which the merciful God justifies us through faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. At this I felt myself straight away born afresh and to have entered through the open gates into paradise itself. The fighting, the wrestle, the striving, the darkness, the depression, the pain, the guilt, the shame was gone. That's the gift of grace. That's the gift of faith. But you can see how perhaps Martin Luther had a problem with James because James says, well, faith expresses itself in works. And so Martin Luther called James the, the straw man of the epistles. He said James needs to be thrown out. <laughs> James doesn't need to be, James shouldn't be in the Bible. And Martin Luther held very strongly to it, the doctrine which we Protestants hold on very closely today, the doctrine of the justification of by faith alone, that we are justified, we are saved by faith. So what's going on here? Should we throw out James? Should we take, take this chapter two of James and throw it out because it opposes this doctrine, doc, doctrine of justification by faith alone? Well, I would suggest that that Martin Luther, and, and listen, a phenomenal theologian in his own right, is misreading James. He's misunderstanding James. He's misappropriating his understanding of faith to James, reading purely through the lens of Paul and what faith looks like in the lens of Paul compared to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing. Two different understandings of faith. Scott McKnight, the theologian, basically unpacks this this understanding or this misunderstanding and the way in which we are to understand faith in these terms. He writes this, there are basically two options for what James means by works. Either he means works of the Torah, as in Paul, i.e. the moral law in which Paul writes, which would bring James into material conflict with Paul. Or he means generally good works, which means James and Paul can be harmonised. For James, works means a life of loving God and loving others. And loving others means deeds of compassion towards those in need. In other words, we understand faith 
a faith that gives rise to good works. When we, when we receive Christ, when we, we take a step of faith, the inevitable and ultimate outcome is that we will be transformed to love the other. When we step into faith, our lives are changed and we behave in a different way. Our faith shows, is evidenced by what we do. And Martin Luther agrees with that. In another statement, he says this, God does not need your good works, your good moral morals, but your neighbour does. Your neighbour does. See, faith in self rejects this wonderful concept of grace, the invitation to place our faith in God. But faith in Christ accepts the grace of God. See, when we place our faith in God, we receive his grace and therefore to agree with both Paul and James, our lives are filled with grace that spills out in generosity. See, grace grows generosity. When we receive grace, it changes us and it must spill out into generosity. And grace sits at the heart of this passage. We may not have caught it, but the first few verses sit this whole conversation in the context of mercy and grace. Verses 12 and 13, James writes, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. We have, James says, received mercy. And that mercy leads us to freedom. It enables us to be generous in grace. See, grace says that everything that we have has been given to us. Everything that we have has been given to us. It's not ours, therefore, we don't need to hold on to it. We don't need to go back to this self-righteousness. It's not ours anyway. Everything that we have has been given to us. Therefore, we don't need to hold on to it. Everything that you have, everything that you have in your hands has been given to you. Where you were born, when you were born, to who you were born, the nation that you've been born into. That's all grace. Don't think it's all about your great skills and your great moral framework. Everything that we have been given has been by grace. And we've been given it to give it away. That is what freedom looks like. That is what the freedom that the law we are in looks like. Just as we've freely received, so we must freely give Whatever we have in our hands, whether that's resources, wealth, agency, Jesus, grace, our presence, our love, whatever it is, God has given us things to give away. I was reminded this week, well, I was actually, I don't know how, but I just started singing this song, which is from the story in the early books of Acts about Peter and John as they walk through the temple courts and they, they see a crippled man and the crippled man says, I just need some money. And Peter and John say, Silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have, we'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. Well, is anybody with me? Come on, Katie. 
There's about two people. Come on, man, I'm really showing my age tonight. It's good stuff, Hannah. It's a great song you teach the kids. I, I was singing that with our kids that kids are this week and they just said, Dad, you're just a bit strange. I, mean, I don't know the actions. You're going ha- to have to come up, Joe, and do, do them for us. Here's the thing. They actually didn't have silver and gold, and I realise we've got some students in the house tonight, and you might not have silver and gold, but what you do have is Jesus in your life. What you do have is the presence of God. What you do have is prayer. What you do have is a kind smile. What you do have is engagement. What you do have is giving somebody else a sense of value, worth, and integrity. Dignity, as we heard before. God has given us a whole range of things through his grace in order to bring love and grace and mercy and extravagant generosity to those in need around us, whether they are on the streets sleeping rough or whether they're on the 30th floor of the Suncourt building, whether they're in your university or whether they're in your house share. We are all invited to give with grace, give with extravagant generosity because that is what God has done for us. Now, I know some of us like to think wisely about our investments. We like to get a return on our investments, whatever that is. But I've been challenged this week. God didn't necessarily do that for us. God came down and he died for us, gave himself for us in an incredible act of vulnerability, knowing that many, 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 many people would say, stuff you. Bad return on investment for some. But for others, Aaron, well, we're invited into eternal relationship with him. You see, I think sometimes we we manage ourselves too much and God is calling us to give grace, to be generous with extravagance no matter who the person is. Generosity is the defining mark of Christians. Let us not be hypocrites. We have the opportunity to change one heart at a time, one encounter at a time, So that people, the people that we engage with in our city, those that we engage with at work, at university, may look at Christians and say, oh, I know know that person. They're not hypocrites. They love well. Generosity should be the, the defining mark of who we are. It was certainly the defining mark of the early church. I read this article on, the AB, on ABC. It's, it's a few years old now. You can check it out if you want. It's a great article. And it was on the ABC website by Gary Ferngren, who's a professor of Greek and Roman history at Oregon State University. And he makes this observation of the early church. He says this, The emphasis was appropriated by Christianity and is mentioned often in the pages of the New Testament, where charity is represented as an outgrowth of agape, which is God's overwhelming sacrificial love, which is rooted in the nature of God. Just as God loved humans, so they were expected to respond to divine love by extending love to his brother who bore the image of God. Love of God and devotion to Christ provided the motivation for love of others and it had its practical outworking in charity. Compassion was regarded as a manifestation of Christian love and an essential element of the Christian's obligation to all people. 
The new image of the poor did not reflect the Christian romanticizing of their condition, but it did constitute a challenge to the rich and powerful who had traditionally claimed to merit a special relation with the gods in their role as patrons of the community. You see that the, these early Christians with their love and their care for all people, giving dignity and value to every person, challenged the systems and the structures and shine, shone like a bright sun in the Roman Empire. So much that it ultimately brought radical change, not only to the Roman Empire, but to the whole world. See, here's the thing. Faith in action has the power to change the world. Faith on fire has the power to change the world. And the early church changed the world. It changed the Roman Empire in which they existed, which has had profound effects up until this day. How? By loving and caring in practical ways, motivated by the love of God for the poor, the sick, the women, the elderly, the young, the slaves, the prisoners. That's how Christianity changed the world. Now, I take great joy in seeing you know, what God is even doing in our midst. You know, before we even planted this church, God called us to be a blessing, to be an influence in this city an influence in industries, whether that be education or business or creative arts or finance, health sector, all these sectors that God has called us to, to actually carry the love of God and to bring dignity and value to every person in every office block, in every university, wherever we go. He's also called us to love those most in need on the streets of Brisbane City. And that's captured our heart. It's grabbed our heart as a church. And you heard Julia share a little bit of that just before. It's been a real joy to see this ministry grab our hearts and continue to grow. I, uh, I received an email this week from, from one of those people who was out on Thursday walking the streets, giving breakfast and dignity to those who'd been rough sleeping. And I just wanted to read it to you. I think we've got some images that are, that are also going to come up on the back screen as well of what the team do. This is what it went. And I've changed some of the names just to protect identities, but this is how it went. Just wanted to let you know that it was a great lunch on Thursday with our two guests, Matthew and Craig. I think, that, I think last week's team saw Matthew, an elderly gentleman who lives in Spring Hill, and he came especially for the lunch on Thursday. We saw Craig on the corner of Albert and Adelaide Streets on the morning walk, and he didn't have any shoes or anything, really. He gratefully accepted a blue hand-knitted beanie, backpack, socks, food, etc. He arrived for lunch, and both men ate huge quantities of food and coffee that Julia and Lancey provided. We all played Uno and chatted with them over the couple of hours, provided frozen meals and donated thongs for Craig from Target. My heart was full after the day and really felt our team had provided the fellowship and provisions that are part of our goal. What a joy. That's what we are called to do as a church. That's what faith in action looks like. You know, I celebrate the fact that we are being obedient and courageous to the call that God has for us 
as a church here in the city. But I know that there is more, that God continues to challenge us and to call us to put our faith into action. And faith requires things from us. Faith looks like caring for the poor. Faith is for all of us. And faith requires courageous obedience. And just this, this week as I've been praying, that has been the word on my heart. You know, it's been a season of challenge for many people and, and we can feel in this season just this sense of, oh, so hard to plan, so hard to know what to do next. Should I really invest in anything at all? And there's a little bit of a warning for me and I think for us is that we can fall into that trap about how we relate to the other. And I think that we've got a choice. This is a reminder again for us tonight. Are we going to choose to put our faith into action? How are we going to put our faith into action? And sometimes there's a gap. We know what we believe and we know what we ought to do, but there's work, there's a choice in the middle. And we may not have that much time. It might be that encounter in the shops. It might be that conversation that we're having at university or in the workplace. It might be as we stroll past a person on the street. It may be that opportunity to make a donation or to give in some way. And we have this moment, am I going to engage? Am I going to let go? Am I going to walk in the freedom of everything that God has given me? Or am I going to close in on myself and try and protect that which I have? We've got to make a choice. That choice may be split second, may have some time. But God is calling us afresh to be generous, to live with extravagant generosity and to love and to give away what we have, our presence, the gifts that God has given us, our love, our resources. My question for us tonight is, what are we choosing? How are we choosing? How are we choosing to put our faith into action? You know, we'd planned that today would be Thanksgiving Day across our different campuses, but because of COVID and because of the lockdown, we've decided to push it back so that we can get these red bags out. This is something we do every year. October the 10th, we're gonna be inviting everybody to come with, a, with their bags, however, however many bags you want or you feel called to bring, filled with uh, items that are on a list so that we can stock our shelves here in the city and throughout all our campuses at Gateway so that those in need can be provided with the resources that they need. And what I'd love for us to do tonight is I've got a pile on either side here and as our response tonight, I'm going to invite you just to come if you, if you feel willing just to, to come and to grab a bag as a symbol. And I'd love for you to take it back to your seat and I'd love for you just to talk with God and say, God, am I living with abundant generosity or have I turned on myself, in on myself a bit? Am I trying to protect what I have? And allow the Spirit just to speak to you. Maybe He will remind you of some things that that you haven't done in the past week, the past month, the past year. Or maybe there's just a posture that you just want to have or however you want to allow God to speak to you. Hold this bag and say, God, what do you want to say to me? So I'm going to invite Jono to come up 
right now. And Jono's just going to sing a song over us. And as he does that, when you're ready, I'm just going to invite you to come grab a bag and take it back to your seat and sit with God and allow him to work in your life. There's no compulsion, no pressure. But if you would like to do that, just come when you're ready. Come, stand, come and grab a bag, take it back to your seat and go do some business with God. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to get connected with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.